Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jesus to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he had laid him. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lynn. All right. Just a reminder, uh, we have a scripture insert and an outline of the sermon that is at the back table. If that is something that helps you follow along with the message, I encourage you to grab one of those, or if somebody would like to pass those out, they are at the back table. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, so some of you know that... uh, I am not originally from Louisiana, a wonderful, wonderful place, uh, or Baton Rouge, an even more wonderful place. I come from 
the Midwest. And this time of the year is tornado season. Because I live in a place called Tornado Alley uh, up in Kansas City. Uh, We uh, have an app on our phone from the Red Cross that you can run a historical survey of tornadoes in your area. And whenever you do that for my house, you could not see anything. It was just tornadoes all over the screen. And I guess the reputation of Tornado Alley is so serious that whenever I meet somebody outside of the Midwest, they're honestly surprised that I'm alive. But, on, but as, it, as it goes, I have actually uh, not seen a tornado with my own two eyes. However, I have spent my childhood with the warnings of tornadoes, often several each spring. And I have gone through the drill of going to the basement, putting on the TV, watching the uh, weatherman describe the movement of the clouds and describe where the tornado has last been seen. And I have huddled down with my family on numerous nights doing this. So you would expect from hearing the news again and again about tornadoes that I would be well prepared when a tornado actually came my way. There was a tornado, in fact, that did come my way. I did not realize it was a tornado because I had bought a tornado radio. And the whole purpose of this radio that I spent $50 on was to scream and bleach when the tornado came. That tornado radio was quiet on this particular night. It was a beautiful spring evening. It was one of those days where you open the windows and you just let all that cool air just go through your house, that free cool air. And we were asleep, my wife and I, in the upstairs bedroom. And then all of a sudden, at about midnight, the rain started coming down and it was being blown fiercely through the screen windows, so fiercely that it was going straight across the floor, right onto my face, sleeping on the mattress a couple feet away from the window. And the, the, the loud wind and the storm, it sounded just like a freight train right outside of my window. And I had been happily asleep, and I was woken by this heavenly disturbance. So what, what did I do after my 30 years of, of preparation for this event? I bolted out of bed, shut that window, and laid back down. <laughs> my wife even said in the midst of this, you know, they say tornadoes sound just like freight trains. This sounds like a freight train. So how would we even know what a tornado sounds like when this is clearly not a, a tornado? So we went back to sleep, had a great night's sleep. Woke up the next morning, turned on the news, and there were houses destroyed by this tornado less than a half a mile from where we were sleeping that night. We had become awakened to this amazing event, this life-altering event, and I responded by shutting the window and going back to sleep. In, in, in reality, as I think about that story, I think that that may describe a lot of how we treat the Easter story. The Easter story is meant to wake us up to a new reality, a shocking reality that should change everything about our lives. Easter was an event that so shocked and startled the first disciples. They were violently awakened that first Easter morning coming to the tomb. It was like a tornado had hit them. We read these words at the end of of our passage 
they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Why this reaction? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ violently awakens us to a new reality. In the resurrection, we become awakened to the reality that God has made himself known, that death is not the end, and that this is the day of salvation. However, just like with that tornado, we are prone to going back to sleep, to shutting the window on this startling announcement and returning to our day-to-day lives. We see this when we receive good news. We know the Easter story, but our lives are, are going so well with the promotion, with the windfall, with the new relationship, with the new baby, with the happy family, the perfect vacation, the ideal retirement. It's all great and good. And suddenly, we are slumbering. We see this when we receive bad news. We know the Easter story. But then the diagnosis comes. The layoff comes. The betrayal. The setback. The gut punch to your plans. A loved one dumps you or a loved one dies. And suddenly all that news of Easter seems forgotten. We put all our attention to shutting the windows, to stopping the immediate crisis. And all that we have been told seems to make little difference to how we react. Now perhaps you are in another category. Perhaps you have never been awakened to the news of the resurrection. For you, it's just unbelievable. It's just something that has been told from generation to generation. It's a grown-up fairy tale. But I hope that if that is where you are, if that is your heart, that you will be willing to listen and consider this message today. Because the resurrection really is a question of what true reality is. If the resurrection is true, then it presents a reality that we cannot ignore. My hope today is to awaken us again to that new reality of the resurrection, a new reality that I hope we will not only be awake to, but stay awake to. Let's turn to the text to see that the resurrection awakens us to three realities. Those three realities are that God has made himself known, that death is not the end, and that this is the day of salvation. Let us look at that first reality that the resurrection of Christ awakens us to. The reality that God has made himself known. Here we are going to look at the crucifixion scene in a little bit of detail. We meet a key character in the the, uh, crucifixion scene. A surprising character, but one that we know is there historically. And that is the person of the centurion who we are, are, uh, see described first in verse 39. Who is this centurion? The centurion is a military leader 
who would have been in charge of several Roman soldiers. So that's one thing to know about him. He's with the Romans, not necessarily on the side of Jesus. Now, as a centurion, he would have been in charge of several Roman soldiers. He would go out to battle with them. He would lead them in brave charges. If he was a centurion, he got there because of his bravery. He was a a man of valor. He was battle-hardened. He had seen a lot. He had been victorious, and he was promoted to the role of centurion partly out of prestige. Now, when it was peacetime, a centurion spent their time keeping the peace. And one of the things that a centurion was responsible for doing was administering the capital sentence of crucifixion whenever uh, that was required. And Rome used it quite often to keep the peace. And so we have a centurion, a man who has seen a lot of war, he's seen a lot of bloodshed, and he has seen a lot of crucifixions. He has administered crucifixions. He has taken the orders of crucifixion and seen them through. And one of the orders of a crucifixion is to make it as awful and as miserable and as humiliating as possible. So we have this man, the centurion, who has seen many crucifixions. He knew what crucifixion was, and he knew what it did. Crucifixion was about destruction and humiliation of the victim. And he had seen countless people nailed to crosses, and he knows how people die on the cross. They die with terror in their eyes. They die begging for mercy. They die ashamed as everyone watches them helplessly in, in, with no clothing suffer and gag for breath. He has seen the anger that comes from a crucifixion victim where he yells back at the mockers. And he has seen the ultimate, powerful, crushing defeat of crucifixion. The man on the cross, the last thing he experiences before he dies is that he is made a reproach, a byword. He knows that he has no legacy, no memory, no friend, nobody that loves him in the world any longer. He has been crushed utterly in whatever movement, whatever revolt, that he was hoping to start is crushed, and that's the last thing he sees. You have become a total and complete loser under the mighty power of Rome. And so the centurion knows the script. He has seen it succeed again and again, but he is here in front of Jesus, and what he sees when he sees Jesus on the cross is different. What did the centurion see when he had Jesus on the cross? What made Jesus a different victim than the hundreds of others that he had crucified? We see from the text, verse 39, that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, 
This man was the Son of God. What did he see that was different in the way Jesus died? It appears that what the centurion had is what I think we are probably all familiar with. Something I'm going to call a transcendental moment. A moment where you see for a second the clear glimpse that reality is greater than what you can see. We have transcendental moments when we experience profound truth. When we experience heart-aching beauty, like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. When you hear that, you have to wonder, did that come from heaven? Because it is so much more sublime and beautiful than anything I have ever heard. Has it touched a higher reality? We have transcendental moments when we ache for justice. When these school shootings happen and the, and the, the, the shooter kills himself and we say, where's the justice? Did he get away with it? No, our heart says there has to be something above this plane where true justice and true mercy and true comfort must exist. Otherwise, the Hitlers of the world have some sort of victory in their suicide. We have a transcendental moment when a child is born. This baby, this human being that fills your heart with so much love and desire and excitement and joy that the moment you hold this little baby, you say, I give my life for this baby. You know when you hold your newborn that the story that this thing is an accident, a fluke, mere tissues assembled together through a completely materialistic process is absolutely wrong. This baby is a gift that is bigger than life itself. I've even seen an atheist friend who had a a child recently, and I saw for a second a transcendental moment explode his worldview because when he had that baby in the hospital, suddenly it was sick. It wasn't thriving. And though I can give you page after page of his Facebook telling us there is no God, when his baby's life was in danger, he asked, please pray for my baby. That's a transcendental moment where suddenly we see more clearly that this reduced reality, that everything is a bunch of accidents and a bunch of of coincidences, is not the whole story. And so what did the centurion see? What was his transcendental moment? First, he saw this man Jesus suffering as one of us. Certainly he has received the same sentence of crucifixion, and he has gone through crucifixion just like many people the centurion has seen. But what Jesus did that was so different is he was crucified and he bled compassion for the crucifiers. As he was nailed and hung to that cross, 
He did not hurl invectives. He did not beg for mercy. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he looked down at his mother, rather than worrying about his own situation and being consumed with his own pain and agony, he looks to the apostle John and says, take care of my mother. Instead of hatred, instead of of calling down all kinds of curses to those who ridiculed him, he was in prayer. The centurion saw Jesus suffer as one of us, but also suffer with a heart that loved in a way that transcends any idea of love that we see in this world. But more than that, the centurion saw Jesus dying in our place. He is not oblivious to this phenomena that is happening around him. He has never seen the the sun stop shining in the middle of a crucifixion. But with Jesus, the world became dark for three hours. And when Jesus cried his last We are told that his veil, the veil that had had been hanging in the temple for generations, had torn in two from top to bottom at the exact moment that he gave his last breath. The veil represented the separation that existed between a sinful humanity and a holy God. God put the veil so that the holiest of holies would never be in contact with the profaneness of sin, which blanketed all of humanity. And yet when Jesus died, the veil was torn in two. The meaning of this is unmistakable. Jesus was not dying for his own sins. If he was dying for his own sins, the veil would have been unaffected. When he died, the veil that separated our sins from God was torn And so Jesus was not dying for his own sins, but ours. So this transcendental moment that the centurion saw was true righteousness on the cross. Real righteousness. And unworldly grace and compassion. He saw the true reality that is above what we see. He saw that the man on this cross was the Son of God. And so convinced of that truth, he had to proclaim it. He had to go public. He had to profess, certainly this man was the Son of God. More than that, we recognize that when the the centurion sees that this man on the cross is the Son of God, he's recognizing something very profound that affects all of us. He is saying that the one that I have just witnessed the death of, the one that I have just put to death, is truly innocent, is incarnate righteousness. So when the centurion says, this is the Son of God, he says that admitting, I have killed a righteous man. I have shed innocent blood. 
You see, we cannot confess that the Son of God was put to death without coming to terms that he died because we are guilty. The Son of God, who has all the power to have whatever he wants to happen to him, happen to him, permitted the cross, not because he had sins to pay for of his own, but because he had a people who had sins that he came to pay for. And so when we recognize that the Son of God was put to death, we are proclaiming he is righteous and I am guilty. I am the one that deserves the cross, but the one that did not deserve it took the cross for me. The centurion's confession tells us that God is met when we meet Jesus at the cross. My friends, this is the gospel. Written for us in the book of Isaiah, we are told, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has revealed himself in Jesus. The God that we proclaim, the God that we preach, is the God who gave his son for us. So that your iniquity, your sins, your guilt, whatever it might be, can be paid for and washed away. He is a God who has given his son for us. God has made himself known as a God who loves us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The cross has revealed to us a God who desires your relationship, who desires you to experience peace from your sins and forgiveness for your guilt. The resurrection comes three days later to put a proof, to put an exclamation point on the centurion's confession. The centurion saw rightly, saw probably more rightly than he even understood, but rightly is certain because the one who was declared as the Son of God three days later rose from the dead because the sentence of death could not hold him, the righteous one. The resurrection means that we must be awakened to this reality that God has made himself known and made himself known in this way. It is incumbent upon every one of us to be with the centurion, to make our confession, certainly this man was the son of God. Have you confessed that and received the full implication that you are guilty and he is righteous But in his death, 
you can be made righteous with him. The second reality that we must face with the resurrection is the reality that death is not the end. After the centurion makes his testimony, after Jesus breathes his last, we are told that Jesus is dead. Truly dead. The text makes this abundantly clear. Look again at verses 44 and 45. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion who asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Again, the centurion provides the key evidence. Having crucified perhaps hundreds, he is the expert witness about what a dead body by crucifixion looks like. And he confirms to Pilate, Jesus is dead. And so we actually read these words in Scripture that the one who was just called the Son of God, we are told of his corpse. That's how dead Jesus was. At one time, Jesus was a corpse. That's an unsettling reality. Not only was Jesus truly dead, but the effect of the crucifixion, the killing of all hopes, was accomplished. We know that the disciples' hopes are dead because we don't read of any of Jesus' disciples on the scene. They do not come to the tomb. They have lost their hope. We're told in Luke chapter 24 that two of these disciples of Jesus were going home. And they said as they were talking, we had hoped that Jesus was the one to bring the kingdom. We had hoped. You see that the hopes of these disciples was dead. It was past tense. These women who are coming to the tomb, they are not coming there expecting a resurrection. They are coming with spices to honor and respect the dead. And so they come to visit a dead body in a tomb. But instead, they hear these words from an angel. He has risen. He is not here. Look, look, the tomb is empty. Later we know he is seen visibly alive by many witnesses. He sees the disciples in Galilee. Paul tells us that there was a time where over 500 people at once saw Jesus. The power of this testimony is that Paul was writing to people, basically taunting them to say, go and talk to these people. They're alive. You can meet them. I'll give you a list of their names. There were witnesses who saw a dead man living again, the same man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And so convinced are these witnesses that they changed the world. Their belief was so grounded in what they saw and what they knew that we have the faith and the confession that Jesus is Lord to this day. You recognize there is no one else that has been crucified that has also been called the Christ. The whole idea of crucifixion is not the Christ. But that we call Jesus 
Christ, the one who was crucified, is incredible testimony that the one who was crucified and crushed by the Roman cross rose again because he was more powerful and more righteous and death could not hold him down. So we know the truth of the resurrection because he was dead by a cross. He left an empty tomb. He left many witnesses and the world filled with this eyewitness testimony believed and became the church. So Jesus' resurrection answers one of the most important questions we all face. It it gives us a clear verdict. What happens when we die? Is death the end? The resurrection tells us that death is not the end. That there is life after we die. And that is incredibly consequential to every single one of us. It means that when you die... There is something on the other side because Jesus came back from the other side. And the question for us is, what will you meet? What will you see? What will you hear when you die? The resurrection for those who make the confession of the centurion, this is the Son of God, and I am guilty and he is righteous. They look at death now with hope because of Jesus' resurrection. As we are told in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, the resurrection means for all who believe in Jesus, this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see that because Jesus has risen from the dead, all who put their faith in Jesus face death, not as the end, but with hope, with the knowledge that there is life after death, there is resurrection, there is reunion with our Savior who has gone before us. But just as the text says, that we do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. There are those who die without hope. And I cannot allow you to avoid this reality. If the Lord Jesus Christ is not your Savior, and yet you know he is the risen one based on the evidence of history and God's holy word, and you refuse to put your faith in that, to put your faith in him, then you are dying, and there is no hope for where you are going. We are told in the book of Acts, chapter 17, that one of the reasons for the resurrection is this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The question, what happens when we die, 
Is there a judgment? How will God view me? All of these questions are answered in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will face God either as judge or as father. And what determines that is whether you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for the payment of your sins and the righteousness that without which no one will enter heaven. Knowing death is not the end changes how we live day to day. Timothy Keller, I I believe, says this well. He says, to the extent that that future of resurrection is real to you, it will change everything about how you live in the present. For example, why is it so hard to face suffering? Why is it so hard to face disability and disease? Why is it so hard to do the right thing if you know it's going to cost you money, reputation, maybe even your life? Why is it so hard to face your own death or the death of loved ones? It's so hard because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. It's easy to feel as if the money is the only wealth we'll ever have, as if this body is the only body we'll ever have. But if Jesus is risen, then your future is so much more beautiful and so much more certain than that. Do you see all the fears and the anxieties that bombard us in this world? The resurrection is the answer. Because the world cannot take away anything more than your life. And in the resurrection, God says, I'll give that back to you. The resurrection must awaken us to the reality that death is not the end. Now third, the reality last that we have to look at in the resurrection is this. The reality that this is the day of salvation. The resurrection tells us the reality that this is the day of salvation. As we look at this text from the book of Mark, we go into the the last chapter. We read of these women coming to the tomb to anoint him with spices. And as we've already mentioned, there are no disciples there. There are no followers of Jesus visiting the tomb. Because as we know at the arrest and the crucifixion, the disciples saved their own skin and they ran away and hid. The dream was clearly over when Jesus was arrested and crucified. And so we read of the, of the disciples cowering behind locked doors, fearing that they would be next. We know the painful story of Peter giving up his entire profession by a little maidservant saying, aren't you a Galilean? No, I don't know the man. Three times. The disciples have become fearful, cowering, disenchanted. Moreover, they are deniers of Jesus. They are deserters of Jesus. One of the most aching passages in the book of Luke is that Peter made his denials not only within earshot, 
but with an eyesight of Jesus his Lord. We are told that after the last denial, Jesus looked at him. And Peter remembered. The disciples have blown it. They are great sinners. They have made their profession and they have fallen woefully short. They have denied their Lord and Savior. If there is anybody that we would say in this story does not deserve a second chance, it would be the disciples. They do not deserve to be saved. They do not deserve the good news. They gave up. They cashed out before the end. And so they should be left to think upon their sins. That is what the world would say. But that is not the message that the risen Lord gives to them. We are told through this angel, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. You see, the disciples had failed being his disciple, but he had not failed and had not given up on them. The risen Lord still calls these deserters and deniers his disciples. And he still goes out and says, tell Peter specifically, come and see me in Galilee. Jesus is welcoming them back. This is grace. This is restoration. He has not come back from the dead to condemn his disciples. He has come to tell them, I have saved you. I have loved you with my life. You are mine and I will hold on to you to the uttermost. I love you. I have forgiven you. And I am restoring you from your darkest night. Listen. Whatever you have done, whatever your deepest shame, whatever your moment of greatest guilt, whatever that thing is that if, I, if someone else knew it would judge you and write you off entirely, whatever sin you have committed, however many sins you have committed, This word is for you. This is the day of salvation. Jesus laid down his life and rose again to cover it all, to expunge it all, to satisfy the justice of God entirely so that you can be covered by his sacrifice and robed in his righteousness so that you can stand before God and know him as Jesus knows him, as Abba, Father. And the Father to look at you and see you with the same delight as Jesus. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Timothy Keller says it well, 
The resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. The resurrection is God's announcement. This is the day of salvation. He has made the way of salvation unambiguous. There is only one who has been raised from the dead. You don't have to play the lottery on who's your savior. There's only one. Acts chapter 4, Peter says this, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the resurrection must awaken us to the reality that this is the day. This is the day of your salvation. You are offered salvation. How do you receive it? Paul tells us in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have you confessed with your mouth and believed with your heart this gospel? The resurrection calls us to wake up. We must awaken to the new reality that God has made himself known that death is not the end, and that this is the day of salvation. We must be awakened to this reality. But this will do us no good if we fall back to sleep. We are all in danger of shutting the window and going back to bed when the heavens have screamed at us, pay attention. How do we keep ourselves awake? We will slumber unless we choose to walk in this reality. We must heed these words of Mark. He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is an invitation for all of us to be his disciples, to live awake to the new reality of his resurrection. It is an invitation to follow him as he leads us to know him as Lord Son, and Savior. How do we respond to this invitation? I believe the Gospel of Mark gives us the answer. We need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to where we first meet him in Galilee. Listen to these words from Mark's Gospel at the very beginning. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Here is where we will meet Jesus and where we will learn to walk in this new reality. We must respond to his call to follow him. This then is what we are going to do. Starting next week, We will go back to the beginning of Mark where we will meet Jesus in Galilee and discover all that it means to follow him. Are you ready to meet Jesus in Galilee? Are you awake? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.